Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Eugenio Duarte. I hope you enjoy the interview you're about to listen to. If you do, or if you have ideas for books you'd like to hear about on the show, let me know. Go to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and click on Contact to send me a message. And now, on with the interview. Hi, this is New Books in Psychology, and I'm your host, Eugenio Duarte, in New York. Today, we're talking about what it takes to rise above harsh circumstances to achieve one's dreams, as seen through the personal experiences of our guests. We often discuss on this show topics with people who have certain professional experience to draw from, and today we're speaking to a psychologist who has taken what he's learned from his professional, but as well as his personal experience, and shared it with the world in the form of a book, and is sharing it now by being on our show today. Our guest is Dr. Shelby Hayward Keglar. He is the author of Underdog to Top Dog, An Improbable Rise, published in 2017 in association with IBJ Book Publishing. He's a psychologist and founder and president of Midwest Psychological Center, Incorporated, and staff member at Community Hospital and Fairbanks Hospital in Indianapolis, Indiana. He's taught at Indiana University Medical School in the Department of Psychiatry, and his prior publications have been in the areas of personality assessment, addictions, and adolescent psychology. Welcome to the show, Dr. Kegler. Thank you. So Glad to be aboard. Glad to have you. I, I want to start with a little bit about your background, because you say in your book that you're, quote, a psychologist, an entrepreneur, and a businessman. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your different roles and what you do? Well, I'm, uh, I started Midwest Psychological Center in 1978. We are essentially a private mental health agency, and we have uh, some sister organizations. We have Midwest Center PC, which is a professional corporation, and we also have Midwest Institute, our non-for-profit arm, where we have a residential facility under that. I also have been involved over the years with um, as a franchisee for the Kentucky Fried Chicken Restaurant. So I've been in another business arena in the past. And our family, I started and helped my mother run uh, an adult daycare business in Illinois. So I've uh, since 1984, uh, I've been an entrepreneur and running uh, this business. I feel like that's an important thing to ask you about because I believe, I don't know if you'll agree, that there is a certain stereotype about the selfless therapist who doesn't really care or even think about money, but you're clearly balancing all three of these roles, and I wonder how you do that. Well, I have a pretty high energy level, and I've, I've been blessed, and uh I always had a vision and a dream of uh, running an organization, and I've been blessed to uh, to do that. We primarily contract. We are not just a walk-in. We started off uh, the business in part-time in 78, went full-time in 83, and I designed the business pretty much like lawyers go into practice, not like physicians, because at that time, private practice was really just in the infant stage, and it was a great risk when you started trying to go private back in the 80s. It wasn't like it is today. So the model that I used was to do part office practice and contractual between the two, and that's the model. Uh, contracts are like retainers in, in the legal field. We didn't just hang a shingle and say people will come as you do in the medical field because, as you know, back then, they wouldn't necessarily be a priority to come from mental health services. Uh, so that's why we started with that type of model and we've evolved 
uh, over the years to uh, grow our organization to have a substantial number of employees, and we've been blessed to survive. What exactly does it mean to contract these services? Well, we contract primarily with government, uh, state, and federal agencies for the type of services we provide. So most of our employees are connected to a contract. We could not sustain the number of employees we have just by an office practice or in several offices. So we contract for two agencies such as health departments, schools, job corps, uh, prison systems, uh, Bureau of Prisons, uh, Department of Child Services. That's what we've contracted with over the years. Health departments, we do a variety of things. So you, Most so of you, our staff. So your employees must really gain a, a lot of clinical experience in a variety of settings, it sounds like. Yes, we do. I mean, we have clinicians who work in, we've had over the years, some contracts work strictly in county jails. We have some who work for the Department of Child Services. We have some who work in Job Corps. We have some who worked in schools. Um, so, yeah, they do a variety. Most of our staff are master's level clinicians, nurse practitioners, psychiatrists, and psychologists. So, you know, most psychologists, when they sit down to write a book, they they center their book around a certain topic or idea, but yours is, is quite personal. And I'm wondering, what was your process in in deciding to do that or even even coming upon the idea to write such a personal book? Well, it was kind of generated by an article uh, that appeared in the Indianapolis Star in 1992. My life was profiled in a feature in the Indianapolis Star where the title was Psychologist Uses One-on-One Skills. He recalls a tough childhood. And that was kind of the impetus for me to do this book. And over the years, I've been encouraged by several individuals who knew the background that I came from and how even in the business world, we've had some uh, failures and I recovered from those. And so they kept encouraging me that you need to write a book to pass it on. I also have worked with uh, troubled adolescents over the years who come from backgrounds and they're either in foster care or group homes, some kind of a setting. And I always, uh, a lot of foster parents ask me for that article in the past because it removes most of the excuses they use to not do better. So when I talk to them, I also work with Upward Bound programs for six years in colleges, working with students from the Upward Bound programs who come from disadvantaged backgrounds. And so over the years, when I've talked about my background and tell them I didn't always wear a shirt and tie, you're looking at someone who grew up an underdog like themselves, they usually paid attention. They would be nonchalant until I tell them you are an underdog like me and you can be different. You can do better. And whatever excuse you use, whether you grew up with uh, not knowing one of your parents or if you're a child out of wedlock, um, you were poor. Uh, when you become a certain age, those just become excuses. There are no reasons to not do better. Hmm. And I can tell you from experience how you can do better. And they usually, that resonated with them and they listened and, and I gave them how my case is very similar to a lot of individuals around the country, but you don't know all of them, you know me. So let's talk about how you can do what I did and and do better. And I usually got a positive response that is not how you start in life, it's how you finish. And they resonated with that because they look at where they are and I asked them, do you have a dream? I usually take a, a survey, and most of them have a dream. And I speak to colleges, college students around the country, uh, different colleges, and and I ask them the same questions. I'm an ex-athlete in college. That's how I got out of poverty, by playing basketball. I played Division One basketball in college, and that was what got me uh, on the foot, on the path to where I am today with sports. I'm still thinking about that first article, and... What, what was the what was that article about, and what what was the message? 
It was a profile of me in my life, essentially some of the same things in the book. It talked about my tough childhood and my mother growing up poor and, and facing racism when I came through the school system. That article featured all of that. It mm -hmm. talked about all those things. So then what was it like to take that and decide, I need to write a book about this because I, you really pour your heart into this book. You really cover your your entire life it doesn't it doesn't seem like there's anything you leave out how how did it feel to put that out there well it was okay i mean it was it was uh not always an enjoyable thing to go back down the uh the path of what i i did i mean sometimes it, it was be a it would be a down moment thinking about some of the things that i overcome uh as my wife said to me once when i said it wasn't always pleasurable going down memory lane and thinking about those things. And she said, why? And I said, because I had it so hard. Do you mind telling us a bit about where you were born and what kind of situation you were born into? Well, I was born in Mississippi, small town in Charleston, Mississippi. I was, um, my mother and father were married. I never knew my father. I was raised by my grandmother and my uncles in the farms of uh, Charleston on a farm uh, in the country. And my mother lived in town. She would probably come and see me weekends, but we had no central relationship when I, I lived in Mississippi. I was raised by my grandmother until she passed. And at that time, my mother sent for me and I moved to Illinois. But growing up in Mississippi, uh, my uh, Uncles and relatives were sharecroppers. They they were worked on farms. They were owned by European Americans, and they were sharecroppers, and that's how they made a living. And I lived with my uncles from various farms and with my grandmother until I was age eight. I was her youngest grandchild, and I was born on her birthday. So I was always with her, and I was with her when she died. And had she lived, I probably never would have uh, moved north, but. Racism was very prevalent. It was a very segregated society. I never interacted with European-Americans at all until I came to, to uh, Illinois and probably was in the seventh or eighth grade before I ever interacted with European-Americans. I attended segregated schools in the South and segregated schools in Illinois when I moved there. Where in Illinois? All the teachers. Uh, Centralia is a town 50 miles east of St. Louis, Missouri. Southern Illinois is close to Southern Illinois University, and we're 50 miles east of St. Louis. Town, at that time, about 18,000 people. And I attended um, elementary school there. All our teachers were black. The principal was black, and I lived in a black community that was, you know, segregated, of course, in the city. Mm -hmm. So would you say your life now is radically different from how it was when, when you were a child? Oh, yes. Uh, much different. Uh, when I went to high school, I integrated. Well, when I started playing basketball, that's how I got integrated with the European-American kids. We had an all-city school team, and that was my first encounter with uh, with whites and playing uh, with white players and the coaches. And the high school was an integrated high school. And it's at that time that I began to uh, see the good in, in, in all people because a lot of the folks who helped me in that town were European-Americans who took an interest in me along with the, the blacks and they helped me in high school and junior college and on to this day I'm still uh, indebted and feel very thankful to them for what they did for me. Uh, I want to ask you about a specific experience that's in the book. You say that at 14 years old you started working, you, you started shining shoes, right? Um, yes. And because your your book is meant to speak to young people now, and because I know that a lot of parents are probably listening to this program, I'm, I'm wondering if you think that starting work so young was a valuable experience. Do you think that it was too young? Do you think 14-year-olds now should, should go to work? Um, what, what do you have to say about that now? Well, I, I think... Uh, and I have some 14 and 15 year olds that work for us that do yard work and do things. I think that at that age is not too early. Uh, if they don't have to work, <clears throat> excuse me, if they don't have to work, I think that's good because I tell all of my kids that 
who worked and cleaned my offices over the years, they started, uh, my grandkids and all started cleaning the offices for us. We've never hired an outside agency in our three buildings. Uh, my kids and grandkids started cleaning the offices when they were teenagers. So I, I think that that part-time uh, work is good if you uh, if you have that. I don't think full-time work. I think uh, it needs to be limited because school is their primary work at that age. But I think part-time work, a work ethic is good to develop at that time. And for me, I did it out of necessity because I, I didn't have any money. So that was how I earned money, by shining shoes for my Friends, parents, basically their fathers, my best friend's parents would give me shoes to shine. And that's how I made pocket money. Did you like it? Yes, because uh, I'd learned by watching in Mississippi uh, in the barbershop where my uncle worked. They had a shoe shine stand and I watched the guys doing it. And that's how I learned to do it. So, uh, yeah, I liked it because that's how I got pocket money 15 mm-hmm. to 20 cents was a lot of money for a kid mm-hmm. back then otherwise i would not have had any money i'm kind of interested in this in in what you just told us about having your grandkids clean your offices what what's your rationale for doing that well it was that they they wanted to make money and it was easier for for them to make money in that that way um and we always taught our kids very early, I think you have to, in parenting, you have to instill certain things in children early. And as I've worked with parents, I've worked with a Head Start consultant for five years where I've worked with young kids and I've worked in elementary schools. And most of the business that I've done over the years where contracts were held by some other agency. And I won those by the merit of my work and the outcome of what we had. So all the school districts I've worked in around Indianapolis and a lot of those contracts, uh, it was the approach that I took to the kids and their parents that I won them from some major corporations. And part of working with the kids, that was part of what I tried to tell parents. You have to start parenting very early. And a lot of the minority community believe in physical punishment. And I cite studies to them. I'm an advocate of that up to a point. But when they get seven or eight years old, it becomes negligible in terms of having an impact. So at that point, you've got to be able to have other methods of changing behavior. And I think most studies have shown that at a certain age, seven or eight, it's, it has no uh, essential impact on kids. So when I work with kids uh, and families, I talk to them. And I, when I was a Head Start, I worked from Head Start to Job Corps, then to prisons, and you don't want to see kids in Job Corps, see them again at, I mean, see them in Head Start, Job Corps, and then in prison. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen a few of those, and you wonder, where did it go wrong? Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's not getting on them early enough. I, I want to follow up on some of the things you're saying, though, because I, I think that our listeners might have a variety of reactions. You're saying that you do believe in giving kids a chance to start working and earning money early and that you do believe that up to a certain point, you know, physical punishment can be effective for people who may not understand that may not agree with that. Can, can you explain to us the, the second one, physical punishment, what you've learned about it in your experience that tells you that it, it can actually be helpful and how? Well, I think, uh, well, first of all, I think it's the responsibility of work. I think, Young children should have assignments in the home or some responsibility to do things when they're very young. And when I'm talking about, you know, when they start five or six, responsibility of how to do something, if it's no more than emptying the trash, but uh, some kind of responsibility, you instill that. Now, the physical punishment part um, is that I think at some point, for instance, I give parents an example if you want to make an impression of a child and say you have a child who darts and leave you or just would dart out and run away from you, if you give that child this, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about just a swat with your hand or something, that makes an impression because if that child darts away from you and run out in traffic or something, it doesn't, your voice and saying stop may not be enough, but if you swat that child one time, you may make an impression 
that is not something you do. And there are a lot of examples of that. So that's what I mean. I don't mean physically whipping children with belts and all that. I mean just a physical tap Mm -hmm. can impress upon a child that there's a vertical relationship. And what we have in a lot of children who don't have uh, self-control or disrespect is they don't learn vertical relationships very early in life. Can you say what you mean by that, by the way? Right, vertical relationships versus horizontal relationships. Horizontal is you put yourself on a plane with everyone else. And very early, children have to learn about vertical relationships in the sense that you, there are those above you, and you are not at the top. You're not on the horizontal level with uh, adults. They are above you. They have authority over you. And so you have to respect those who have who are above you, which usually are authority figures and adults, not just necessarily those in your home, but outside of your home. And that's the problem we have with a lot of the school problems with children in school. They don't respect vertical relationships. They see themselves on the same relationship as adults. You know, I'm glad that you're bringing this up because um, as a minority myself, I'm, I'm, I'm Hispanic and, and of Cuban parents. I've always observed professionally and personally that that minorities sometimes have a way, different way of doing things, a different way of raising their kids compared to uh, more European American, Anglo American uh, traditions. But a lot of our developmental theories in psychology and developmental psychology are kind of normed on European American white uh, children and families. And so I'm wondering when you're talking to parents or when you're maybe speaking to an audience at a conference and sharing some of your ideas about child rearing, whether you ever encounter resistance, whether you ever encounter disagreement, people who think that, that you're wrong and, and how you negotiate that. Yeah, but, well, that's exactly uh, correct. I, uh, I'm very active with the Indian Association of Black Psychologists and the National Association of Black Psychologists. I've been a member since 1968 when I was in graduate school and you're, you're correct. Their, their parenting uh, approaches are somewhat different with minority families. And I think uh, often I, I do, uh, when I'm speaking to audiences, audiences, and they can be a mixed audience or European-American or just black, I do receive uh, some pushback sometime about the physical part. But I, uh, for instance, a good example uh, Sometimes in the European American, uh, they see children's rights uh, much differently than we do in the minority community. Uh, my child has a, a right for their privacy. I can't go in their room and they have a right for this and that. Well, that's, you know, a child in the minority community doesn't have a right to go shut themselves in the room and, and you can't go in their room or the child to you invaded my privacy. Well, most minorities look at that as nonsense. You are a child in my home, and you that's not how it works. You need direction. That's not and how it worked in my house. And I'm very familiar with, uh, with uh, the Hispanic population. I talk to a lot of them here. Um, I said if the Hispanics had been uh, more populated, and I minored in Spanish as an undergrad. That was one of my minors, but I lost all of it because I couldn't find any pen pals and <laughs> people to converse with back then. And now 18, I had 18, 20 hours of Spanish. And so that was my choice as an undergrad. So uh, I have a lot of Hispanic friends who, who work with me and, and do work. And we talk about, about you know, that thing with their children and they talk to me. So it is, it is a drastic difference. But that would be an example of their feeling that children are uh, endowed with certain uh, privileges as a child, and we feel that a child has to be trained in, in, in the minority community. They have to be trained in, in the right way. And you see that a lot in uh, in uh, immigrants, because when their children come here and they act so differently, one of the things they say, especially the blacks on the island, is you're acting American, which means that you are taking on different values, you're not valuing education, you're not valuing achievement, you're acting American. And you'll, you'll hear that a lot with a lot of foreign-born kids. Their, their, their friends will say to them, you're acting American. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I, and I want to bring in another topic to, to bring us back to your book, because 
we're talking right now about culture, but you know, your book addresses several things. It, it addresses the impact th through your personal experience of things like race and also of class. You make it very clear in the book that you grew up poor, and and I'm wondering how you think that shaped your development. And in general, what is what are your theories about how, in general terms, that affects children's development now? Well, I think it affects your, uh, children's self-esteem from the very beginning when you see things and, and realize in a lot of ways that your limitations because of your your class. And as we become more of a society, uh, sometimes folks have said, is it a matter of uh, class more so than race? Uh, because you, you find out very early that you uh, have class. I mean, we found out very early when we we walked back and forth to basketball practice uh, a mile or two, but our friends' parents picked them up, and they were at home eating by the time we even got close to home. So we found out the difference in class right away. But uh, when you grow up at a lower class, you have no way to go but up. Mm. And so that was how we pretty much grew up, that there was nothing. You're at the bottom now, so the only way to go is up. And so you try to strive and achieve, and you instill that in in your family. And, and I saw that uh, that work ethic and education. It was in a community, a uh, minority community, education was pushed as the way to improve your status and your class. But I'm thinking about the psychology of a person who grows up poor, because you're saying that when you grow up poor, you can't go anywhere but up. But, but I'm wondering about what does it take for you to believe that you can go up? And are there circumstances when people who grow up poor might not feel like that's an option for them, might actually feel like there is no up for them to go to? They're, they're stuck. And, and, how, yeah. and how do you reframe that? How do you instill that hope in someone who's in those circumstances? You've touched on a very important factor that you have to have the hope comes from having mentors and people who take an interest in you and encourage you and show you that there is another way. Because so many of the inner city kids or poor kids do feel like there is no hope and the man has got me down and I'm not going to uh, be doing it better. And that's a reference you hear a lot in minority community when they refer to the man, the man's going to hold you down. The man's not going to let you achieve anything. You have to have hope given to you by mentors who could be teachers, coaches, anyone who takes an interest and show you, yeah, there is a better way to do it. And I think that's a critical ingredient. You talk about mentorship in the book and your own personal mentors. Can, can you tell us about who were the, who were the relevant mentors in your life? It started with my teachers. My elementary teachers were my first mentors, uh, coaches, uh, league coaches and school coaches were the other mentors who encouraged me. And then the counselors and teachers took an interest. Uh, European Americans were uh, also took an interest in, in me and a lot of my friends and said, you can. They took I talk about a friend of mine who said he'd never uh, had been to a college, but a, a teacher who knew he liked uh um, English and history took him by himself, a European American, took him to Southern Illinois University, and he ended up going there. If it hadn't have been for that teacher taking him, he would have never gone to college, he said, because he didn't know anything about it. But that one teacher knew that he had an interest in poetry and writing and took him to uh, hear someone speak at Southern Illinois University. So we need mentors like that. So it sounds like you're suggesting, at least in this anecdote, that sometimes when you grow up in certain circumstances, certain, certain things just never occur to you. They don't even enter your, your consciousness unless someone else puts it in front of you and says this might be possible for you, as it, as it happened for, for this friend of yours whose teacher actually took him to the college. Um, so, so I'm wondering if you, you could say something about, in, you know, what exactly is the role of a mentor as you see it? Like, what is the function? What are they supposed to do? I think it's to encourage and guide. Encourage and guide a person. 
is the primary role of a mentor. Did the mentorship that you received growing up shape how you mentor kids now? Oh, most definitely, it does. How so? Because, uh, first of all, I tell them and try to show them that there's a, a better way to pursue your dream. And if they have doubts, I try to explain how you can do it, as it was explained to me. I had a lot of doubts about whether I would go on to graduate school or how I would do in college. And my mentor told me how to do it and said, you'll see, just take it a step at a time. You will see, because some of my fears I had, they said, well, you just take it a step at a time. You'll see, hmm. you can do it. So I encourage, I try to show direction and encourage. Uh, and also I'm involved with a lot of youth programs and we do take students on college tours today because mm -hmm. that's important. So I'm curious how it is that you came, how is it you decided that you were going to be a psychologist? I'm wondering like if that was even something you decided or if that was something that sort of happened for you step by step. How did that come about? Well, it could have been that divine intervention. I had a, a undergrad degree in sociology and there was no social work program at the school, and I went into a master's program in rehabilitation counseling or rehabilitation psychology. And when I got drafted into the military, I uh, didn't want to be a military policeman, and so I was introduced to a clinical psychologist in the military mm. who got me into what we call advanced training to become a clinical psychologist specialist. And with that training of three months, I became basically a clinical psychologist specialist. You work under psychologists, and it was four of us in the office, and we all worked under psychologists and psychiatrists, and we all vowed that we, after we saw the reservists and all those who came in from the high-power schools, and we thought we could do this. And so we all made a vow that we would probably, that we would go get our PhDs. And so it's at that point that I decided I would be a psychologist. Wow, so that, it sounds like that was a really significant experience. I'm wondering what kind of work you did um, as a clinical psychologist specialist. I worked in the uh, Brook Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. It was a medical surgical hospital, and I worked in the outpatient clinic with relatives uh, of the soldiers and as a Working under psychologists, we primarily did testing. And so that's where I got my basis for being a neuropsychologist. We just did testing primarily, some training uh, in crisis intervention, but primarily our, our duty was to do testing, uh, psychological testing under the psychologist. And that's primarily what we did. So what, but what was it then about the experience that, that touched you and made you decide that that's what you wanted to do for the rest of your life? Well, helping, I think it, the helping part and seeing the connection between what we did and our testing and how the psychologists and psychiatrists based their uh, treatment on what our testing showed in terms of the treatment protocol or the medication. And so I was already in the helping field because my master's degree was in rehabilitation psychology. So I was going to be working in some capacity as a helping profession. So being able to work there and see the impact they had on helping others. And also, we worked sometimes with veterans who were coming back in the hospital would be referred to us from who had had experiences in Vietnam, negative experiences. And we didn't do the therapy, but we would do the assessments on them. And so you still would see how uh, your input mattered to the, to the team. So you decided to get go for your PhD, and you went to Indiana University for your PhD, correct? That's correct. How, how would you describe your graduate training? Well, it was very good. I, uh, I hadn't always, it's another thing I told uh, a lot of students, you, it's not how you start because I wasn't always the best student. I just got grades, well, good enough to play basketball. That was my major reason I wanted to go to college, actually, was to play basketball. But 
after the master's degree, we made that vow that we were going to, uh, I had another year left after the military to finish my master's. It was a two-year master's. I made a vow that I would come back and be more serious about uh, academics and get my grades up, and which I did the last year. And I was turned down at several schools, but I was fortunate to be admitted to Indiana University and became a minority fellow from APA. Um, so I, I, I kind of had an insatiable desire for learning all of my life. I like to read. And so I, I worked part time at a mental health center and then I got accepted in the program and I did a joint doctorate across several programs. I did dual doctorates and uh, competing with some of the majority students who had gone to most prestigious schools and had been academically superior all their life. I mean, it was a challenge and they often, until they got to know me, made comments, you know, how they'd been to Harvard or Yale or the big schools. But my sports background had taught me that it doesn't matter what you've done in the past is what you do right now. So having gained confidence from overcoming some big obstacles in sports, I used that same approach there. And often I was the only black in the classes. And so um, I took a, and there were professors there who took me under their wings in those departments. You always had one or two who were very uh, progressive minded back then and and uh, was my advisors. And so I always sat on the front row. I had certain things. I didn't believe in sitting in the back of the classroom. You sit right on the front row and uh, every class. And I had some experience in the field, so I kind of knew some of the stuff that other students coming out of undergrad didn't know because I had worked some already. But uh, it was a challenge because frequently when you come from a less outstanding academic background, you're questioned by the students, and but I, it didn't intimidate me. Oh. I, I can recall uh, professors having a class with a standing room only and saying, I only uh, grade on a curve and so many people are going to flunk this class. And the next day, half the class wasn't there. Wow. I, you know, the room was, you could sit down wherever you wanted to. And the next day, the first day, it was standing room only. And he was a publisher. He you knows his book. He was so renowned in his field. But I took the attitude that I got to have this class. And so if everybody leave, I'm going to stay. Indiana University is in Bloomington. And um, right. I'm, I'm wondering... You know, what What would you say was the state of race relations in Bloomington at that time? And, and could you tell us, you know, what years you were there, too? I was there from 75 to 79. Uh, the race relations were okay. I mean, it wasn't standard. I still think at the university, in certain departments, there hadn't been an, an abundance of graduates. And so the professors, you know, had their doubts, too, about your ability to do the work. And at that time, Indiana University Psychology Department didn't have that many graduates prior. And subsequent to us, it was the, as we fought to get more graduates in psychology at that school, outstanding students would come from some HBCU, which is historically black colleges, and they would not stay there because they felt alienated in the departments. And they would they would come there with superior grades, but they would leave because they felt alienated. So part of the movement back then was at some of the schools where I interviewed, like Southern Illinois University, the students did most of the interviewing because they had to have uh, their own group of camaraderie to make it in those programs. And so most of the successful programs back then admitted a number of black students, not just one or two. So then you'd have your own support group, your own study group, and those programs were more successful than where they admitted one or two. So in your department, you said that people would sometimes, you know, I guess question you or question why you were there given your academic background. But do you think that that was also coming from a place of racism? Yeah, I think it was stereotypical racism, mm -hmm. feeling that you don't have the ability to to, to do the work. I mean, I think that was part of it. It, it could be uh, subliminal, but it was there. So now when you work with, with young people, what kind of issues are they, what kind of race, racism issues are they facing? How is racism manifesting in, in their lives? Does it manifest differently 
than it did in the in the seventies when you were in school? Well, I, I think there there could be some subtle differences, and the young folks today don't realize that it's still prevalent. They tend to assume that it's not, and then when it touches them later, I think they're more uh, devastated by it, as opposed to in our generation, we were kind of prepared for it and kind of knew it was there. A lot of the young folks today feel like, oh, it's not there. And then when it hits them, I think they're more devastated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Whether it be in schools, uh, in high schools, I think we've seen it across the United States, an exodus from mixed schools to suburban schools, charter schools across the country. And I travel the whole country and I see that. And so we are going back in some sense to a segregated school system. So with with that in mind, I want to talk about the chapter in your book entitled Overcoming Barriers to Success, because this is this is one of many barriers that I'm sure your your clients face. And what what is cool about this chapter is that it's really kind of a transition point in the book where up to that point you've you're really telling your personal story, but then you really put together in a succinct way what the what the takeaways uh, ought to be for for your readers, and one of the chapters that I personally related to, or one of the the reflection points that I personally related to, is the one: uh, "Don't let pride get in the way," because I think that's something that's a universal struggle. Can I ask you what what do you mean by pride? You know, what is it, and and what do we let it get in the way of? Well, I think pride is is, is not facing the reality of sometimes what your shortcomings are as a minority and realizing that you're going to need some help in some area to achieve your goals. And you have to be willing to accept that help. And I've worked with students in Job Corps and facilities and places who might struggle in one or two courses but don't want to accept the help. And I tell them, don't let one or two courses stop you from reaching your entire life goal because you may never have that subject again, but you'll let that one class stop you from becoming an RN or a nurse or something. So swallow your pride and if you have a, a need or deficiency in some area, accept the help. But what do you think is the resistance to that? Like, What do you think is going on on an emotional or psychological level such that someone would rather keep struggling and maybe not do well in the course than then accept help. Well, I, I think it's it's the students who, it's not the top student, I think it's the students who feel like I can do it or their ego gets involved and they don't really feel like you're, you're they feel like you're putting them down if I accept the help. And I give an example with a lot of, and I'll say African-American males who I see a lot of that. When they play basketball, and I played basketball with a lot of young folks for a long time, they would readily accept a bad pass, a mistake, and say, my bad, my bad. They would pat themselves on check and say, my bad. But they will not do that in other areas as readily and say, my fault or my bad. But they will in basketball. Huh. They're readily, you can see the toughest uh, talking about, my bad, my mistake. But when you get outside of that arena to another, then they don't want to admit the shortcomings. I'm, I'm, I have trouble in this area or... I need help or I'm wrong or I admit that I'm wrong or I back down in an argument and say, my fault, sorry. We, they get away from the same thing there. You know, they can bump into somebody and they want to look tough and have an image. And I think it's all tied into imaging and your know, ego where they drop that in some settings and readily admit fault. You, you know, it's funny. I was recently at a talk by Kirkland Vaughn's. Uh, and he talked about how many young black men feel like they have to have a certain swagger. And, and in, the, in the service of maintaining that swagger, perhaps they're reluctant to admit having done something wrong, having made a mistake. Though you seem to be pointing out that for, for some reason sports is a kind of safe space where they can admit that they've messed up or they've done something wrong and, and not let it bring them down. So... You've mentioned sports several times, and it's in the book. 
you know, can you can you tell us about what what sports you played and and what you learned from sports? Well, I played basketball and football in high school, but I went to college and played basketball. And I uh, the three things that sports anchored me in was uh, I had a, I called it the CDC consistency. You have to want it every time desire and determination. And that is what it takes for a person who is an underdog. You've got to want it every day and you've got to, that's the consistency and you got to have the desire for it and you got to be determined. And mm -hmm. that's what I got from sports. I also got the value of teamwork, seeing things come together and working as a team. And that's kind of a model that uh, for management that I took to my business. And so it's been very important to me over the years. I use that same approach because business, uh, if you take athletes who are successful and give them the right academic training, they usually do well in whatever field they go into. And you think that that's because there's something about the, the additional experience of sports and the, and the teamwork that helps them I guess, make better use or have a better experience in academics? Yes, I think so. And you also learn the value. You learn how to fail and get back up. Mm -hmm. You learn how that everything is not going to, you're not going to win every time. Mm -hmm. You learn how to lose and say, we'll play better next week. And that's what it becomes in a professional world, in the business world. You don't always win, but you can't just stay down. You, you learn how to accept this disappointment and discouragement and get right back up. And sports teaches you that, all sports, no matter what the sport can be, soccer or whatever, lacrosse, anything. You learn that. Mm -hmm. I, I want to yeah. ask you about some of your work through the Midwest Center because uh, I read that since the 1990s, you've actually been expanding your services, particularly with young men coming out of jail. I think we talked a little bit about this at the beginning, and I'm kind of hoping you could tell us about this aspect of your work? Well, we, we try to transition uh, youth uh, out of jail back into the community. I've been involved with uh, a very important legislation in Indiana, the felony uh, forgiveness law. We worked 11 years to get that passed, and we were honored in the General Assembly here uh, this, this year. We have a minority mental health professional association, and we found, and when we started this, it took us a long time to get this legislation passed because, uh, and I was also spoke at the national meeting about it, to give uh, minorities or anyone, not just near, anyone coming out of uh, prison an equal time or equal place at the table, they have to do something about the felonies. Nonviolent felonies. We're not talking about uh, violent felonies, but just nonviolent felonies. They become a major uh, obstacle to reintegrating into society. So we worked and was able to get the law passed here in Indiana that you can get your felony expunged after so many years if you do certain things. And that provides hope. And when we started this work, most people were surprised that we had an interest in that. They went, why are you interested in felonies? I said, because if you have a felony, it leads to mental health problems, depression, hopelessness, addiction, uh, domestic violence, because if you can't make a living, you eventually have to take a living. So the felony prevents that. And that's why it took a while for us to convince, convince legislators that as mental health professionals, we had an interest in that legislation. And we have a very small group. It showed that it doesn't take an army to get something done. And that legislation eventually got passed in Indiana uh, two years ago, and we received an honor for being the pioneers in that. And our group is no more than 20 strong. Well, congratulations for that. Um, I, I imagine that in addition to whatever kind of practical obstacles the felony presents, for people and finding a job, I wonder if you've observed that having that way on you or, or sort of dragging that with you has a psychological effect as well. Oh, yes, because we all know that if someone says you're a convicted felon, 
you're automatically put in another category. And that affects your self-concept, I imagine. Yeah, self-esteem, your self-concept, and just the hopelessness that so many of them have when you have to work seven, eight dollar minimum wage job for years and you've been away and the family thinks you're home now and your children, and everybody, and you can't improve their life much because of the minimum wage job. So oftentimes in the family, you still can't take your rightful place as a leader in your family because the mother is still making twice as much money and you're still just sitting at the table almost like a child because you can't take your rightful place and your self-esteem is very low and you need to do better. And that felony prevents that. And I know folks who can't be professionals uh, in positions because of a felony. You can't take your grandkids into your home if they need to be because you have a felony. I mean, there are just all kind of ways and obstacles that you, you had a minister that hadn't had a speeding ticket in 20, hadn't had a ticket in a parking ticket in 25 years, couldn't take his children when his daughter wasn't doing right because he couldn't get approved by the Department of Child Services due to a felony 25 years ago that was a non-violent felony. So his kids had to go in the system. I feel like there's so, there's so much that we could talk about just based on the things that you share in the book. And there's so many things in the book that we haven't gotten to get to. I want to remind our readers, the book is entitled underdog to top dog an improbable rise by our guest dr shelby kegler dr kegler where can people get the book you can order the book from ibj.com slash books or amazon just go to amazon underdog to top dog either one you can order the book great and before we go what what are you working on now well, my, I'd like to do a second book, uh, which would be more uh, an academic book on raising black males in today's society. And that is what I'd like to do next. Well, I, I hope that you'll consider coming back on the show when you finish that book, because I would certainly like to talk to you about it. Be happy to do so. Dr. Kedger, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. That was my interview with Dr. Shelby Kegler, and this is Eugenio Duarte, your host for New Books in Psychology in New York. Don't forget to leave me your comments by going to my website, eugenioduartephd.com, and clicking on Contact. Until next time, have a great week.